This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Emily Hoffman, steering committee member of the Jewish Vote. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to talk about the Jewish Vote. So could you tell us about how it came to be? Yes, absolutely. So um, the Jewish Vote came out of an organization called JFREDGE, which stands for Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. Uh, JFREDGE has been around for almost 30 years, um, and it was basically organized by New York City residents in the early 90s who... Um, you know, were very proudly and strongly identified as Jewish, but didn't necessarily feel that the organized establishment Jewish community was reflecting their values. Um, I think this was sort of highlighted when Nelson Mandela came to New York in the early 90s and a bunch of progressive groups, um, you know, a wide sort of coalition of, of multiracial groups were were really excited about this. And a lot of the organized Jewish community for various reasons, um, you know, was, was not happy with him being there. And there was essentially a group of Jews who felt like they needed a space to organize both as Jews and as advocates for racial and economic justice, um, hence the the birth of the organization, Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. And so um, the organization has run over the past almost 30 years, a bunch of different issue-based campaigns um, involving affordable housing, involving um, the right to essentially have rights as a domestic worker, um, a lot of activity around police accountability, after the election of Trump, we felt like we needed to do a little bit more in the actual political arena and to have more of a voice in electoral politics. And since J. Fredge is a 501c3, um, this was done by forming um, an organization constructed legally in a way that um, it could actually have a say in electoral politics. And this is how the Jewish vote was born just a couple months ago, earlier this year, kind of right in time for the the primary season in New York. And what has been your involvement in the primaries? Basically surveying some of the races um, and figuring out which ones it would make sense to endorse in. And that takes a bunch of factors into account, um, you know, where our, our partner organizations at JFREDGE, even though we're a separate organization, obviously we, we share um, staff and, and members with JFREDGE. Um, so, you know, where are our partner organizations focusing? Where do they think um, our presence would be helpful? Where is JFREDGE trying to kind of grow its membership. There are certain areas of the city where Jay Fridge has been, been getting new members and wants to kind of keep focusing. And so that kind of played into our strategy. So we ended up endorsing in, um, I don't have the number in front of me, but I want to say maybe like six or seven races. 
across the city in the primaries, and we had different levels of involvement in each race. Um, some of them, we had did a whole bunch of canvassing. Some, you know, maybe we did one or two events, just kind of depending on capacity and where we felt we could have the most impact. And so now that the primary season is over, we're kind of figuring out next steps in terms of the general election and where um, we can have the most impact. So there was one race in particular that had a lot of controversy in regards mm -hmm. to a candidate's Jewish identity. Could you mm -hmm. walk us through that? Sure. So I assume that you were talking about Julia Salazar. So I am indeed. Yes. <laughs> um, so Julia um, is actually, I should say, a now former, um, because she won her race, a former staff member at Jews for Racial and Economic Justice. So she she took a leave of absence for uh, for the campaign. So she wasn't actually working there um, during the campaign, but it emerged uh, during the campaign. Uh, there was a piece in a website called Tablet um, stating that you know Julia calls herself Jewish, but she wasn't born Jewish, um, you know, it's it's unclear how much of a claim to Judaism as she has based on her heritage. Many, many people who went to college with Julia and sort of knew her during that formative time in her life vouched that, as she has said, she really began to develop her Jewish identity during that time while she was in college, which at this point, you know, is anywhere from like seven to 10 years ago you know, studied Torah while she was in college and kind of really immersed herself in the community at Columbia University where she went to school. She was involved in Hillel there. She was involved in J Street, um, which is a, a Jewish group that that um, focuses on Israel-Palestine. I, I think our role at the Jewish Vote was to sort of say, um, you know, something we're always kind of saying in JFridge, um, which is basically that anyone can sort of anyone who, um, you know, has a Jewish community that that they belong to and that claims them and who in good faith is is claiming and living out a Jewish identity and living out what we consider to be Jewish values should be able to to be a part of our community. Um, and a lot of the exclusive exclusion of folks from the Jewish community often tends to happen around racial and ethnic lines and it was hard not to feel like that was happening with Julia um, given that she is of Latina heritage and does not sort of fit the molds of white Ashkenazi Jew that often can sort of just go unquestioned and under the radar in terms of of being a valid Jewish identity. And would you say that her positions on Israel and Palestine factored into this controversy? Um, you know, I can't say for sure, but it's it's certainly hard to to think that they didn't. Um, you know, there's already in the wider Jewish world a lot of questions about who is a real Jew, you know, both around racial and ethnic lines, but even around political lines. I mean, we have right now Israel not letting in people with strong, provable, to whatever extent, Jewish identities because of their uh, political views, because the, the government is afraid of, of letting people in who could, you know, even in a peaceful manner, kind of stir things up and, and participate in activism that is critical of the government. Um, and so it's hard not to see, not to see this as something trickling down you know, from from that government stance, like if if someone, you know, is sort of quietly coming into the Jewish community and claiming to be Jewish and kind of towing the the establishment line when it comes to Israel, then they 
they certainly aren't going to get as much um, focus or, or scrutiny as as someone who you know actively participates in a Jewish community and and you know shows their their interest and and enthusiasm for that community, but also you know sees being critical of Israel and its policies toward Palestinians as, you know, an important part of their identity as well. So in in short, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard not to think that that both the the racial aspect and the, the Israel-Palestine aspect have, have influenced this conversation about Julia. And what, if any, position does your organization take on Israel and Palestine? So we stand against... Uh, the, the occupation of the Palestinian territories by Israel. I don't have our full platform in front of me, unfortunately, at this moment, but that's sort of the general gist of it. But it, more importantly, um, we're, we're a big tent, really, in all aspects of Jewish identity, including position on, on Israel-Palestine. So, you know, there are people in our group who consider themselves to be avid Zionists, and they are just as, you know, we do what we can to make them feel just as welcome as people who, you know, claim to be anti-Zionists. Anyone's allowed to be there, but folks obviously have to respect that the position of the organization is uh, critical of the occupation. We don't take a position um, on the BDS or boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. However, we do stand really strongly against legislation that's been popping up all over the country that tries to sort of scare people in a sort of McCarthyistic way out of out of um, expressing their positions on boycott, divestment, and sanction. Um, and that is that actually was sort of an issue in the races in New York this year because there was a couple of years ago legislation going around um, to try to in effect, blacklist people who were participating in and supporting BDS. Um, And then eventually there was an executive order issued by our governor, Andrew Cuomo, that did create such a blacklist. So we do stand firmly against legislation like that, that that aims to to limit the exercise of free speech. Going back to kind of the the birth of your organization, Mm -hmm. what exactly does racial and economic justice entail? That's a great question. You know, it's hard to sort of give one narrow definition, but certainly for us, um, it involves kind of looking at communities that have been marginalized on a, to use the words again, racial or economic basis. Um, You know, in New York City, um, there are, you know, Latino communities, Black communities, Caribbean communities with, with really deep roots in New York City. And often they, you know, because of racism and white supremacy and marginalization don't get the same voice um, as, you know, white folks from more upper class economic backgrounds do. Um, And so JFRETCH really initially was an organization that saw itself as we're white Jews basically um, kind of trying to be supportive and be allies to communities of color um, and kind of, you know, talk to them and figure out what the issues are and how we can support them in, in fighting on those issues. And it was in that vein, you know, that we began our police accountability work um, and our housing work and our, our domestic workers' rights work. But over the past few years, we've actually shifted 
to say, wait a minute, you know, there are these people, I mean, to go back to the Julia issue, there are these people in our, our community, there are lots of people, lots of Jews in the US and all over the world who are people of color. And it's sort of hypocritical of us to be ignoring that and to be thinking our, of ourselves as as a monolith. And we really need to, to kind of check ourselves and make sure that internally we are lifting up the needs of, of people of color and of low income folks in our community. And so that's been something that the organization has really been been thinking about over the past few years it, with both the Jewish vote and JFRIDGE. The idea has been that our values as Jews very much align with our values as social justice active activists and advocates, you know, being able to have full participation in society and, and be treated fairly um, by the government and by law enforcement for folks to be treated equally, those are values for us both as Jews and as social justice advocates and our sort of the argument, I guess, of our organization is that those Jewish values and those act activist values can be one in the same and we don't have to sort of have our Jewish lives separate from our, our activist lives. And I'm curious as to how you personally got involved with this work and how you've seen yourself and the other people at this organization connect Judaism with social justice. Yeah, so I grew up definitely with a strong sense of Jewish history, you know, being a social justice, a history of social justice work. I have ancestors who were very involved in the labor movement in New York City um, in the early 20th century. Um, and so always kind of held those stories close to my heart. I think after college, moving to New York, feeling strongly identified as as a Jew, and also feeling strongly identified as someone who cared about social justice, like I needed a place where I could hold those identities together. And so, you know, fortuitously, three folks that I knew was was introduced to JFREDGE. I think especially on the issue of Israel-Palestine, it feels really important to have a space as a Jew to kind of be able to deal with the complications of that issue and how the Jewish, the sort of establishment Jewish community marginalizes people based on that issue and to kind of have a, a place to, to kind of talk through some of that stuff and to be with other folks who, you know, feel similarly feel solidarity with the Palestinian cause, but also, you know, feel, feel that it's important to not you know, erase Jewish narratives either. It can feel kind of rejuvenating and 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 comforting to have that space, you know, to, to be in community around around the, the complexities of that issue. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates, causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day, 
I pretty much live there. So if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. There's a lot of discomfort about electoral politics among leftists. Why jump into electoral politics? What are your thoughts on why electoral politics are a worthwhile effort for leftists, especially racial and economic justice advocates? That's such a great question. And it's complex. And, you know, I think so I guess first I'll say for me personally, um, you know, electoral politics is very important, but only to the extent that, you know, people are also, you know, fighting on issues and fighting on the ground and, and organizing communities as well. Like it's not something that should just be happening in a vacuum. We're running people for office and we're never kind of talking about what the strategy is and what the larger issues are that we need to be moving politicians on. Um, so it's definitely something that needs to happen with other work. Across the country and across communities, the election of Donald Trump as president, um, it still feels weird to say that, was an impetus for people to, to run for office and get involved. And it felt like this is important ground that we can't just totally cede. Like this is where a lot of power is being built on the right and by people with fascist and white supremacist leanings. And we can't just sort of cede this ground entirely. Like we need to make ourselves heard. Um and particularly with the Jewish vote, I mean, so our name is a little bit ironic because uh, the Jewish vote, you know, in, in general is taken to mean the vote on Israel. If someone's, you know, Jewish and a Zionist, you know, they they get the Jewish vote and, and we're sort of, you know, not letting that ground be seated without a fight either. Um, you know, it feels important for us to say, wait a minute, the Jewish vote isn't about you know, wholeheartedly, uncritically supporting Israel, the Jewish vote should be about the issues that that our communities in in New York and, you know, around the country care about, you know, police accountability, universal health care, affordable housing, reproductive justice, you know, it shouldn't just be this very narrow issue that isn't really affecting New Yorkers day to day. And the story of this year's New York state primaries is really interesting. Could you walk us through that? There's so much to say about this. First of all, uh, this year and last year were, were years when something called the IDC really came to light. And so that really affected the conversation and the races and the primaries this year. So the IDC is the Independent Democratic Conference, um, essentially it was founded maybe six or seven years ago by a guy named Jeff Klein, who was a Democratic state senator. He sort of realized, hey, I'm never going to be, I want to be, you know, the head of the state Senate. I want to be running things. I want to be, you know, in the in the dark, shady room where decisions get made. And that's not really going to happen if I just stay a Democratic state senator. So if I want power for myself, I'm going to have to kind of like create my own group where I can sort of be able to pull the levers and because there's always been such a sort of tight, it, 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 most for most of the past several decades, the Republicans have been 
the majority in the state Senate, but it's, it's, you know, to my knowledge in recent years, at least always been relatively close with Democrats having power for a little bit. So essentially, if you have a small group of people who say like, we're going to do our own thing, that small group of people can have a lot of influence. And so he created this group, uh, the IDC, Independent Democratic Conference, brought in a bunch of other people. Initially, it was a group of all white folks, which sort of added to to some of the problematic aspects and optics about it. And they, they caucused with the Republican conference in the state Senate. So that made it hard for a lot of Democratic bills to, to come to a vote and made things easier for Republicans and made things much easier for the members of the IDC who, you know, were able to to raise a bunch of money, um, largely from the real estate industry and kind of dole that money out to their districts, which is hypothetically great, you know, for a district that needs some extra funds to get money. But this is money that could have been spread across a whole bunch of districts. And, you know, if the IDC wasn't hoarding power in this way, they could have been working with the Democratic conference to get get real progressive priorities accomplished, um, things like Medicare for all or stronger rent laws. So in the past couple of years, the IDC tort, tried to tried to fight against the argument that, you know, it was sort of an all white group and and that there was racism involved by by bringing in a couple of members of color. And, you know, all of these folks, again, were getting extra. The incentive was getting extra money for your district. A lot of them were given high positions in committees that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get. Went on for several years. And then this year, enter Cynthia Nixon into the, the primary race for governor against Andrew Cuomo, um, there had already been, since the election of Trump, more attention to what the IDC was doing and how, how sort of crazy it was. But then with, with Cynthia Nixon really um, loudly using her platform to criticize uh, uh, to criticize the IDC, among other aspects of, of the Cuomo administration. You know, Cuomo had always sort of enabled the IDC, encouraged the IDC, and then said, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. But somehow, once Cynthia Nixon got in, got involved and started criticizing him for that stance, um, he, he facilitated a deal between the IDC and the Democratic Conference, where the IDC essentially agreed to disband and go back to the Democratic Conference. Um, however, uh, you know, a lot of New Yorkers with progressive values and who are involved in the grassroots or beginning to get involved in grassroots politics and organizing were not satisfied with that. Um, you know, we certainly weren't parties to the agreement between the Democratic Party and the IDC. And so even actually, I should say, before the the agreement was reached, um, a bunch of folks decided to run challenges against IDC members. Um, and even after this agreement with Cuomo happened, they, you know, continued their campaigns because they had no reason to trust that the IDC was was over and done. And so there were challenges to all eight IDC members. Um, six of those challengers won their races. We're going to have Albany is going to look different in that regard in the fall. Um, a lot of these folks running challenges were very young, a very like diverse and dynamic and, and energetic group that sort of frame their races around 
making sure that the IDC was dead and gone for good and also, you know, kind of emphasizing their commitments to to getting progressive policies enacted. Um, At the same time, while Cynthia Nixon was able to really lift up anti-IDC voices, she and her running mate for Lieutenant Governor Jumani Williams um, did not win their races, although Jumani Williams came quite close you know, were not successful against Governor Cuomo and Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. Um, So in a way, I don't want to say they're martyrs, that feels like way too strong a word, but they were people who were really able to bring a lot of attention and light to the corruption in New York state politics and sort of, you know, held up that torch and kind of allowed, kind of helped um, the the anti-IDC candidates um, to to come through, but, but they themselves uh, were not were not victorious. So why was that the case? Why did these anti-IDC candidates win? Julia Salazar wasn't even going against an IDC right, candidate. That is true. Why why did they win? But the top of the ticket, particularly Zephyr Teachout and Cynthia Nixon, didn't do particularly well. Such a good question, and I don't have a perfect answer for it. But my opinion personally, I guess, is that, you know, the the folks running for legislature were running much smaller races, and that's just sort of easier. Um, you're convincing a smaller group of people. Um, something I also have been thinking about a bit is it's so important both politically, but also kind of ethically and for the sake of of being a good uh, community leader and an elected official to 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 build relationships in 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 marginalized communities in communities of color. It certainly looked to me like Cynthia Nixon and Zephyr Teachout were trying to do that. But the fact is, they just didn't have those roots. I don't think that they, you know, had spent the past several decades really building those relationships. And I'm not saying I'm not really faulting anyone in this. But, you know, as a middle class or upper class white woman kind of coming into communities and saying, trust me, vote for me, I'm going to be better than this guy. Or, you know, the recent people, I guess, maybe in in Zephyr Teachout's case, it's hard to quite trust that. A lot of the anti-IDC candidates were candidates of color, you know, had stronger connections to their communities. Um, and I think that definitely resonates for folks, you know, to see someone like them running for office. And so, you know, Zephyr Teachout was defeated by T- Letitia James, um, who's currently the New York City public advocate and, you know, has spent years building relationships throughout the state and was able to really call on those relationships um, during this time. So that's just my extremely amateur political scientist theories. Yeah. So what lessons did you take from this election cycle, both with victories and losses? What are you going to do moving forward? I think, you know, the victories have been so exciting because the people who won, you know, weren't people kind of running based on electability, like they were, they were really running against the odds, but they were so strong on message. You know, Julia was so focused on ideas around strengthening the rent laws and universal health care. Um, Zelnor Myrie, to name another candidate, you know, was, was all about um, affordable housing in his state Senate district. You know, none of these people were t- trying to sort of run to the center. And so it's just 
incredibly exciting to see that it's possible, that it's possible to beat the machine. You know, again, another person, Alessandro Biagi, the 34th State Senate District, beat Jeff Klein, the founder of the IDC. Uh, he outspent her 10 to 1. Um, I think it was something like he spent $2 million, she spent 200000 That's pretty incredible that, you know, you can win on message, not on money. Um, and so that feels really exciting. You know, at the same time, looking at some of the races where progressives weren't successful, you know, maybe we need to think about who we're lifting up. Totally admire Cynthia Nixon for running. I think many people were not brave enough to go against Andrew Cuomo because of his $30 million war chest, because he's known to be vindictive, because he's been spending decades building relationships in New York State. Um, I greatly admire Cynthia Nixon. And I'm also not sure that, you know, in an ideal world, she was the best candidate, you know, maybe someone with deeper roots in communities of color who can really speak to those concerns of those communities um, and be a, be a leader who, who represents those communities. Folks with more experience as well, like to the extent that there are folks with legislative or executive experience who, who feel um, supported enough to step into the ring, I think. I think someone with that kind of experience could have perhaps made a more convincing argument. So th those are things I'm thinking about, definitely. Going into the general election, one of the reasons that these challenges were, I would say, relatively uncontroversial, even though Democrats this cycle have largely advocated against tough blue-on-blue -blue races in the name of party unity. And mm -hmm. we could have a whole episode about that argument. A lot of these candidates who won are shoe-ins. The primary was basically the general election for them. Mm -hmm. Going forward, what are you hoping to do to hold these candidates accountable to ensure that they do continue to stick to the values that they ran on. As part of our endorsement process, um, we interviewed folks and we also had them fill out a questionnaire. And in that questionnaire, we asked them about uh, a lot of the issues um, that we are concerned about and asked about their stances on those issues. And we also asked, you know, questions about how we would be able to hold them accountable, because that's really sort of the whole point, you know, it's not, we're not doing this for them, you know, it's exciting when our candidates win, but it's not about like, putting them into power and then patting them on the back and saying, good job, you won. Like, it's really about building a bigger movement and putting people into leadership who will carry out our values. Um, and so we asked folks, you know, on the questionnaire, would you commit to, to meeting, you know, a certain number of times a year with us, and, and other questions like that, you know, and, and not to say a piece of paper is is going to, you know, necessarily bind them to those meetings. But, you know, both in person, and on paper, we got those commitments, you know, we want to keep meeting with these folks, we want these folks to kind to to raise the issues of our partner organizations. I mean, for example, Jay Fredge is a member of CPR, Communities United for Police Reform, which is a very large coalition of organizations in New York um, that have been fighting uh, for various police reforms for the past six or seven, I think, years. So, you know, making sure that that these newly elected officials pay attention to the issues of, of coalitions like that. And if they don't, 
we're we're certainly not going to support them and maybe we'll we'll try to find people to challenge them but we also you know focus our endorsements i think in people who have a history of activism and a history of being a part of community organizations um and i think we we do have some trust um at least until proved wrong that these are folks you know, who are really committed to the work of of improving our city and and carrying out progressive values and and weren't sort of just using that as a as a messaging tool. But we will see and we'll stay vigilant and we're not just going to sit back and move on to the next thing. Like we're going to we're going to be watching and we're going to be pushing. And lastly, how can folks get involved in the Jewish foe and where can they find you online? We have social media pages on Twitter and Facebook, jewishvote.org. That is our website, and you can sign up there to get involved with the organization and be a part of our next steps. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jordan. It was great. Of course. And lastly, as always to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Support us through our Patreon. Check out our website, millennialpolitics.co, and stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.